Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, also our sermon text from the book of Philippians, beginning in chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the humility of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who came for us. We thank You for Your Word and the clear picture of Him in it. We pray that as we meditate on it today, that You would conform us into His image and in His name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In his homilies on John's epistles, Augustine said, Where there is charity, there is peace. And where there is humility, there is charity. Where there is charity, there is peace. And where there is humility, there is charity. In other words, if you want to have peace, and unity in your church or family or anywhere else in your life. You must have charity. You must love one another. And to love someone, you must have humility. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in our passage today, you must have lowliness of mind. You remember the last time that we were in the book of Philippians, Paul had been exhorting the Philippians to have this kind of peace and unity among themselves as part of their living a life worthy of the gospel. He tells them in chapter 1, verse 27, to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We talked about the image that they were to be like soldiers linked together, arm in arm. And the unity was, was vital for them. It's, it's vital for us, but it was vital for them, you'll remember, because of the hostility they faced at the end of chapter 1 and verse 29 and 30 he says for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict that Paul was having but unity is vital for other reasons as well the kind of life that we live out together our unity and our fellowship is an essential part of our witness 
as a community. The Lord Jesus said as much in his high priestly prayer in John 17 as he prays for us, those who will believe through the apostles' words, saying, Father, I ask that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Disunity turns a Christian fellowship in on itself. Wasting energy on needless quarrels and unproductive projects in a way that leaves precious little energy to be a shining light or preserving salt in a culture that desperately needs both. Disunity also harms our witness because the gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace with God. How can a watching world believe that Christ reconciles us to God if it's manifest that we are not reconciled with one another? Unity is so, so important. It's vital. It's what the apostle exhorts us to in our passage today in verse 2. Look, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. It's impossible to read his exhortation and not hear the call to that unity. Have the same love, he says. Be of one accord, literally to be soul-joined with one another. To be like-minded, to have one mind, bracket the exhortation. One mind. What is he what kind of unity does one mind look like? What is he calling us to? Does he mean that we should, the Philippians, and we should have the same opinions on everything? That we should dress alike? That we should like the same food? Does he mean that they, they need to have the same theological positions on every jot and tittle in their fellowship? Is that what he's calling us to? No, the word mind... Is a, is a verb there. It means a mindset, an attitude, a reckoning. We are to have Christ's mindset. You see that in verse 5. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. Unity, in other words, means a frame of mind rather than a focus on intellectual conformity. Although I will say that those who have Christ's mind, Christ's humble frame of mind towards one another, are actually in a position to move towards unity on secondary issues and opinions and proclivities because they have the ground of humility with which they might seek truth together. But even if the Philippians, even if each of us are not to come to the exact same opinion on every piece, we can all still have the unity, the frame of mind that Paul calls us to here. This kind of unity that he calls us to is vital. And in our day, it is so rare. It is so rare to find a family or a group of friends or a fellowship or a church that has this same love, one mind for one another. It's like, it's so rare, it's like gold. It's like when you can find it, it's like finding gold. And so in a way, our passage this morning is like a deep mine. Not a mind, a mine in the ground. And this unity he calls us to is, is like the gold bits on the surface. And if you scratch the surface a little bit deeper, finding the precious unity, you'll find that it's based on an attitude of humility. 
And then that in turn opens up into the deep and precious vein of the most profound theological reality of all, the incarnation of the Son of God. It's what we celebrated in Christmas. Isn't that amazing that Paul is always linking our fellowship together, our life together, and our families, and the way we treat one another to profound theological realities? He calls us here to unity and humility, and what does he appeal to? The incarnation of Jesus. In these opening verses, he shows that the unity he exhorts us to is based on that humility. And then he sets Christ forward as the portrait and the source of true humility. So let's, let's begin by looking at the bedrock. Let's begin by looking at the humble mind of Christ. Read with me in verse 5. He exhorts us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The mindset we are to have is Christ's mind. Let this mind be in you, he says. Older translations, if you read like this, the New King James say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I know some of you might be reading a newer translation like the ESV, which says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're supplying words for a very compact Greek sentence. The older translations are emphasizing the imitation of Christ's mind. And the new ones are union with Christ. But both of these ideas are present because Paul goes on to expound the humble-mindedness of Christ and he's urging us to live out our fellowship in imitation and in union with the Savior. Paul points us again to the basic framework for Christian living as he does over and over again. You are in Christ, therefore you are to imitate Christ. Imitate Christ by the power that Christ supplies. He is our portrait. He is our means. Let the humble mind of Christ be in you. And we can see what his mind was like beginning in verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The idea of a form is not the modern way we use the form as in contours or the, the shell of something. But in the older way, we used the word form in English, of the very essence. We might say the quintessence of something, the very nature. You might say she is the very form of beauty, or his answers were the form of truth that is truth himself. Jesus was in the very nature of God. And notice that he was being in the form of God. It is who he is. By nature, he always was, always is, and always will be God. It's not something that he aspired to or earned. Whatever it meant to be God was true of him. Was God, is God omnipotent? Jesus then is omnipotent. Was God the creator? Jesus is the creator. Is God infinitely wise and good and just and holy? Jesus is infinitely wise and good and just and holy. Is God worshipped and adored by myriads of angels? Jesus was worshipped and adored. He had all the rights and prerogatives of God because He is God. It was not robbery for Him to be considered equal with God. But the eternal Son of God did not clutch at or jealously guard His prerogatives. 
He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Instead, he was willing to come to our fallen and helpless world for us. He was in the form of God. He was under no obligation to do so. And yet Jesus, it says in verse 7, made himself of no reputation. Literally, he emptied himself. Not that he emptied himself of divinity, as if that were possible, but of the privileges of being worshipped and adored, of not having a creaturely nature, of not suffering the bounds and limitations of our finitude and the pains and the afflictions of our world. Notice in verse, verses 7 and 8 that he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He came. He is the one doing this. No one is forcing or coercing him to do this. He came willingly, joyfully for us. He could have held on to the prerogatives of deity, but instead he came taking our humanity. His was an emptying, not by subtraction of of his divine nature, but an emptying of addition, of taking, it says, the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. This is what we just celebrated in the Christmas season. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. Truly God, and yet truly man. This is the wonder of God's humility. The infinite, eternal, glorious God would join Himself to our weak and frail humanity. He would come, as it says in verse 7, as a servant. The servant prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. The servant of the Lord who would bear our sorrows and carry our pains. That God Himself would know what it is to hunger, to thirst, to need, to want, to lie in a manger. And even more that He would serve His creatures, healing our diseases, casting out demons, preaching light and truth, comforting His people. This is the humility of God the Son. The Lord Jesus did what we so often fail to do and have always failed to do since our first parents. He set aside His prerogatives and served God and man. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were made in the image and likeness of God. It says in Genesis. And they grasped at the prerogatives of deity. While Jesus, who is God Himself, who was in the form of God, who has the nature of God, emptied Himself set aside His glory to serve. He came in the likeness of men. Verse 8 continues, he says, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And what ought, what ought to strike us about this verse 8 is that phrase, He humbled Himself. What do you mean he humbled himself? In verse 7, he was the eternal God who took on humanity, who became weak and frail. Hadn't he already humbled himself? No, the idea is that he humbled himself again. And being found in the likeness of a man, he humbled himself again. He continues to humble himself, to become obedient to God. He obeyed his heavenly Father perfectly. I only do, he said, what I see the Father doing. Therefore, my Father loves me because I always do those things which please Him. He humbled Himself by being obedient. How, how different, how utterly different from our own lives, which are so marred 
by disobedience, which are so often taken up with the determination to do our own will. Right? But here's Christ obeying His Father, obeying the law of God perfectly for us, His people. And His obedience was an all-the-way obedience, a true obedience. Jesus Christ did not obey for a time as long as it was comfortable and then try another path. No, He obeyed, it says, to the point of death, even the death of a cross. This is true service. This is what it meant to be the prophesied servant of the Lord, the one who pours out His soul unto death, the one who's numbered with the transgressors even though no deceit is found in His mouth. Even it says the death of the cross. Of all deaths since Adam, his was the cruelest. A Roman cross, an emblem of suffering and shame. It's one thing to die. It's another thing to be utterly shamed in the public eye. And it's another thing to die being shamed in the public eye as you are tortured to death. These Philippians, many of whom were Roman citizens, would not even use the word cross in proper conversation. It was, it was too abhorrent. It was too shameful. This is the death that Jesus died. But even more than the public shame is the fact that the cross is a cursed death. The law of God had said, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because we were under the wrath and the curse of God. Why did Jesus have a crown of thorns pressed upon His head? It's the emblem of the curse. The way that He died showed that He was bearing the wrath of God, that He was bearing the hell of of God for you and for me, for His people. That He would come and He would be obedient. He would not clutch at His prerogatives. He would not clutch at deity. But He would lay aside His glory and obey perfectly His Father all the way when he was in the manger, he would obey his father perfectly. When he was a child, he, will, he would obey his parents and his heavenly father perfectly. When he was an adult, he would obey his father in his ministry, always telling the truth, always being gracious, always being kind, obeying perfectly for you and me. And then when he got to Gethsemane, and the terror of the cross, the terror of the wrath of God is before him, as he sweat drops of blood, what would he pray? Not my will be done but your will be done. And he would go to the cross and bear the wrath of God for you and for me. Why? Why would he do this? It's because where he, it's where he saw us. It's where he saw you and me. Under the wrath of God. As Paul would say, he considered not only his own interests, but he looked to the eternal interests of his poor and hell-bound people, and he came for us. What Paul lays out for us in this passage, theologically, Jesus illustrated beautifully in John's Gospel in the upper room as he washed the disciples' feet. Let me read from you from the Gospel of John. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. Hear the echoes of our passage today. God the Father had given all things into his hand who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It says that he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, 
took a towel, and girded himself. Our passage says he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. John's gospel records that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to go to the cross. I want you to see, friends, not just the humility of Jesus, but how close he has come to each of us in salvation. You don't need to go to heaven to bring Christ down. Christ came. He came of his own accord to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He did this all for you. He did this all for me. There is no depth of sin or misery that you are in today that is out of Christ's reach. There is no sin in your life or in your past that is so wretched that he cannot clean or forgive it. He has been to the grave. He has been literally beneath our feet, washing our feet. He's endured the hell of the cross for you and for me. This is the nature of true humility. True humility is not thinking of yourself as a worm or walking around with downcast eyes. Jesus constantly, in his earthly ministry, called himself God. That's precisely why the Jews wanted to kill him. What did they say to him? They said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. It was the exact opposite. They thought he was proud and arrogant. He was, he was humble. He was God become a man. He being very God had become a man. True humility is laying aside your prerogatives and obeying God in service to others. Consider his mind. It doesn't end there, though. After Christ washed the disciples' feet, John records that he, that he put his garments back on. He resumed his glory, and he took his place. Look what our, our, verse, our passage says in verse number 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who made himself of no reputation, God is highly exalted and made his name to be known and revered on bended knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God and Savior. Every knee in mercy or in judgment will one day bow to him. This is the reward, this is the promise of the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. We should have God's mind for Christ. We should highly exalt him. Let, let us now adore him on bended knee for his service to us. This exaltation was also on the mind of Christ. It's something also that we are to imitate. Hebrews tells us that exhorts us, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 2. True humility seeks after true glory. 
And true glory is glory that is received from God. Notice that it is God the Father that is doing all of the exalting here. Therefore, God, it says, God the Father has exalted him. Christ is not exalting himself. Christ is not ascending to the throne and taking the throne. Christ is not putting a crown of gold on his head. It is God the Father exalting him. This is precisely the opposite of the word conceit that Paul has in verse 3, where he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Literally, it means vain glory, empty glory. It's not glory, the book of Proverbs tells us, to seek your own glory. But instead, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, He may exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6 If you don't insist on what is yours by right, but freely give it away in service to God and others, God will give you true glory. It won't be vain glory. It won't be climbing glory. It will be the kind of glory that only God can give. God will give you true glory, and He will give you the people whom you serve. Did you see that in the verse? Did you notice that Christ didn't need to take on human flesh and come and die on a cross and rise from the dead in order to be exalted to the throne of God, in order to be worshipped and adored. He didn't need to do that. Verse 6, he was in the form of God. He did need to die and rise in order to be worshipped and adored and exalted and redeem you. True humility seeks after true glory received from God at the proper time. And for the good of those, it serves. So do you want God to to give you your children? Lay aside your prerogatives. Lay aside your preferences. Lay aside your rights. Obey God in service to them. And God, at the proper time, will lift you up and will give you your children. Do you want a good marriage? A God-honoring marriage? Set aside your preferences. Die to yourself. Serve your spouse according to the law of God. At the proper time, God will glorify you and give you your spouse. Do we want a healthy church, a vibrant church, a saved community? Do we want people to come to the Lord? We must have the mind of Christ. Set aside our rights, our prerogatives, our preferences. Serve so that at the proper time, God may exalt us and give us those we serve. This is true humility, the humble mind of Christ. You see the deep bedrock of the incarnation of the Son of God. Have this mind, Paul says. What are we to do? Have this mind, he says. We've already seen that these verses illustrate the great principle of Pauline theology. Union with Christ leads to an imitation of Christ. Consider what Christ-like humility means. Not standing on our own rights, but being willing to give them up for the sake of others. Jesus told those disciples in the upper room, If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. John 13, 3 through 5. You're never more like God than when you are not insisting on what is yours by right. Rather, it is pride that is the cancer. It is pride 
that corrodes our true human dignity. It is pride that corrodes our fellowship. When you humble yourself like Jesus, you come closer step by step to Christ, who is the very image of God, in whose image we were made, and in whose image we are being remade. This is what we are to do with what Paul gives us here. Do nothing, he says in verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Literally, verse 4, interest is a filler. In the original, it's open-ended. All that's specified is your own fill-in-the-blank, your own things, or the other person's things. So it could be, let each of you look not only to your own financial affairs or your own property, your own family, your own health, your own reputation, your own education, your own success, your own happiness. Don't just think about that. Don't just work towards that. Take to mind the other financial affairs, their property, their family, their health, their reputation, their education, their success, their spiritual life. In other words, verse 4 is nothing other than saying Jesus' great command, love your neighbor as yourself. That is, make the good of others the focus and interest of your work. Find your joy in making others here in this room with you joyful. It seems so impossible in our fallen state. How are we to do this? Come back again to verse 5. Let the mind of Christ be in you. Imitate Him, empowered by Him, by His Spirit. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one accord. Be of one mind toward one another. Christ's mind for one another. This is the way we, as a people, will have peace and unity. This is the only way that we will be persuasive to a watching and hostile world. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you again for the humility of your Son, Jesus Christ, who set aside the worship and splendor of heaven and came and served you and served us, your people. We pray that you would conform us to his image in our own fellowship, that we would have the unity of mind, that we would have one love, that we would be of one accord, that we would have the mind of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.